Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. This morning, I would like for us to consider the question of human value. What gives humanity its dignity, its significance, its worth? This is an important question for us to ask of ourselves, both publicly and personally. Publicly, we know that all around the world, us, and all around the world that we live in today, are what the news commonly refers to as human rights violations. And I'm thankful for the activists and politicians and people who are working to remedy those various violations. But in spite of their efforts, there is still, I think, confusion regarding the basis of human value and worth. Confusion in our own country. And I would produce for you as an example a case in 1999 of a man uh, in the military who beat his wife, who was pregnant, Uh, with their baby, and though he did not kill her, he killed the baby. Military prosecutors, of course, prosecuted him to the fullest extent of the law for beating his wife. But they were unsure on what basis they could prosecute him for taking the life of that baby. They were unsure on what basis they could prosecute him. So a bill was introduced try to remedy that situation. And that bill received a lot of opposition from people like one representative in California who basically was against the bill because if she was going to accord rights to that baby, she would be according rights to the thousands of babies who are aborted every year in our country. There's confusion about human rights. We aren't clear. When we don't have a good understanding of why humans have value, things like that can happen. And we have a remarkable ability as humans, as one person put it, he says this way, the annals of our species also reveal the most remarkable capacity to screen out as unnoticed or unheard the pains of those marked for liquidation or subordination. We have a remarkable ability to, on one hand, affirm human dignity and on the other, exclude others from that dignity for reasons that are self-serving. It's an important issue for us to consider. But it's also an important issue for us to consider on a personal level. There may be some people here listening this morning and you were told growing up that you weren't worth anything. And that you would never amount to anything. Or maybe you were never told that. But maybe it's something that you've always thought. And believed to be true. We as human beings, I think, seem to have an unquenchable desire for significance. Don't we? Don't you? Don't you want to die with the reassurance that you actually mattered to someone that the time spent on this planet might as well never have happened, that, that your life 
or the legacy that you, be, that you leave behind just matters, just counts for something. I think we all, on some level, want that. And so, as human beings, we try to find significance in all sorts of things. We try to find significance in the jobs that we work, the businesses that we can build, the empires that we create, the legacy that we can leave behind, the fame that we're able to achieve, the records, the world records that we're able to break. I'm speaking of humanity as a whole. I don't think anyone here has broken a world record. (laughs) But in the end, I mean, what's the significance of being able to swim faster than the next guy? And yet, people spend their whole lives defining their significance by being able to do just that. We find even significance in at least being able to produce children that will go on to be successful and think, at least if we can do that, we'll have counted for something. I think as Christians, we need to be careful about finding significance in those kinds of things. Those things are worthy pursuits, as we'll see. But our significance as human beings, our value and worth, runs much deeper than any accomplishments that we could make in life. If we are going to have a proper understanding of human value and dignity, then we are going to have to have a biblical understanding of what gives human beings worth. An understanding that many people who are in leadership in our country and around the world do not grasp. Christianity has a robust answer, I believe, for why human beings are valuable. Why there can be such a thing as human rights. Because rights imply worth. Why there can be such a thing as human dignity. And I think the Bible addresses that in the very first chapter of the very first book. Genesis chapter 1. Let's read verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis isn't just this ancient thousand-year-old book at the beginning of the Bible that has little or to no relevance on our lives today. Genesis, I think, answers some of the biggest questions of human existence that people are either asking today or feel but have never verbalized. Genesis answers questions like how we got here, why we're here, and why is life the way it is? Genesis also answers this question of human dignity, which is why I say in the program that you have, in the outline that's in your program, first, that the image of God is the foundation of human worth. The image of God is the foundation of human worth. 
Do human beings actually have value? Christians can answer that question with an unequivocal yes. They do have value. We have value because we are made in God's image. Human beings are the only ones of God's creation in verse Genesis, in Genesis, that the Bible says uh, are in the image of God. No other being in creation is that set of. And as beings created in the image of God, we have unique capacities. We were created to have a relationship with God. We were created to live in the world that he had created us to live in and to rule over it and to subdue it for good, all under the loving rule of a righteous God in whose image we have been made. But what does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, we can embark on a long study of how these two words, image and likeness, in our text are used throughout the Old Testament. And then we could look at the Greek words in the New Testament, and then we could see how they interact, and we could come up with a, we could write a long dissertation about it. Or I could just give you this definition. You ready? It's long. Man is like God. That's it. What does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? It means simply that human beings are like God. Now, before you hurl accusations of blasphemy at me, let me explain what I mean by that. God graciously, in creating us, imparted something of himself to us. He made us to be like him. He made us in his image. He made us to reflect him in a way that no other being in this creation reflects him. How do we do that? I'll submit we do that in several ways. This isn't necessarily meant to be an exhaustive list of the way we do it. But there are several ways in which we are like God and in which we reflect him. We are like God morally. We were created as moral beings. We have a sense of rightness. That something is the way it should be or is not the way it should be. We have in us a sense of right and wrong. Your cat has never called Dr. Laura on talk radio with a moral dilemma. Doesn't happen. But we as human beings were created with a sense of right and wrong. We are moral beings. We are secondly emotional beings. God created humans with unique capacities of joy and delight that no other creature has. And he gave us those capacities because he has capacities for joy and delight. In fact, for all eternity, he has been enjoying and delighting in himself. And he has shared that with us. And we were created to inhabit the world that he had given us, to enjoy it, and to enjoy relationship with him. We are like God, volitionally. In other words, we have a will. We're able to choose between one thing or another. We are able to decide upon one course of action or another. We are like God intellectually. Human beings were created with the ability to know. We have rational, uh, rational abilities to think through problems. We've been given language. We can communicate with one another. Of course, we do not know, as with all the other things, we don't know like God knows. 
God knows every fact in the universe immediately and exhaustively. That means that God knows every fact in the universe all at the same time. And not only does he know every possible fact at exactly the same time, he knows each fact completely to the fullest extent of its being able to be known. That's God. We don't have that ability, but we were made in God's image and likeness, and we can know things. Not fully, not exhaustively, not completely, but we can know. We are like God relationally. The first relationship, the foundation on which all other relationships are built, is the relationship of the Trinity. God has existed eternally, enjoying a perfect relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we, members of a creation that He made, were invited into that relationship. Not because we were needed, not because there was something missing without us, but because God delighted in doing so. And so God made us to be relational beings. We can relate not only with him, but we can have relationships with one another. We have creative abilities. We are like God creatively. Not in the same way that God is creative. God created everything with a word. We don't create the way God creates. And yet, you realize that we reflect God in the arts, when we paint, when we sculpt, when we choreograph dance, compose music, write poetry, books, film, theater, all of those are creative abilities that reflect on our creator and were endowed on us by him. Each one of these things that I've mentioned, and you may be able to think of more, but each one of these things that I've mentioned is a gift from God that was given to us so that we could, on a finite, limited level, reflect his glory back to him. That is the foundation of human worth. But there's an implication of this. The implication is that humanity has value, dignity, and worth not inherently, not intrinsically, because of what we are, or because of how great we are, but because of God. We have worth because of something else. And if I could illustrate it this way, I would illustrate it with the world of memorabilia. We have people who collect sports memorabilia, music memorabilia. So you can get the shoes that Isaiah Thomas wore when they won one of their championships. Or you could get a seat from the old Tiger Stadium to remember it by. It's being demolished. Or you could get a guitar that the Beatles played. Or to pull something from recent memory, you could get the glove that Michael Jackson wore. Now these items all sell at auction for a lot, don't they? Thousands upon thousands of dollars. But we have to ask ourselves, are these things valuable in and of themselves? Is there anything particularly valuable about Michael Jackson's glove? Or a seat from Tiger Stadium? It's, it's steel and wood put together. I assume. Never been there. <laughs> these things aren't valuable inherently because of what they are. What gives these things value is what or who they represent. 
And so it is with us. We have value not in and of ourselves, but because of the God who made us, who we were created to reflect back to himself and to show to each other what he is like through the use of our God-given abilities. That is the foundation of human dignity, value, and worth. You may think because God created us, how how could it be that if, if God didn't need me, God just created me for his own glory. How could I have any worth? I'm, I'm expendable, right? If there was no need for me, what's the point? Why am I important? Listen to what Wayne Grudem says about that. He says, this fact guarantee, guarantees that our lives are significant. When we first realize that God did not need to create us and does not need us for anything, we could conclude that our lives have no importance at all. But scripture tells us that we were created to glorify God, indicating that we are important to God himself. This is the final definition of genuine importance or significance to our lives. If we are truly important to God for all eternity, then what greater measure of importance or significance could we want? We're not going to find significance in any of those things. There is nothing higher than the fact that you and I are important to God for all eternity. We're important to Him. Something happened, though, as we all know, that changed everything. Which is why the second point in your outline says this. The image of God in man has been shattered. In Christian theology, we refer to the events of Genesis chapter 3 as the fall. The two people who God had created who were meant to reflect his glory, who he had lovingly invited into the relationship, the perfect relationship that he already experienced, those two people were influenced by Satan, who said, perhaps perhaps God doesn't really have your best interests in mind. Perhaps God's trying to keep you from something. Perhaps God is thinking that if you, if you do this one thing, you'll be like him. And he doesn't want any competition. Perhaps God is self-centered in a way that is detrimental to your well-being. And they believed him. And the one thing that God had set up for them, the one prohibition that they were to abstain from, they broke meant to rule creation under the loving rule of God, they revolted against that rule and put themselves in charge in his place. They did it for a lie. They believed a lie. The results of that, the collision, the collision of humanity's will with the will of God, that collision had catastrophic results for the world. I was driving home one afternoon. This, this, this collision of wills reminds me of this picture. I was driving home with my dad one afternoon. There was some kind of collision, the car in front of us. So we stopped on the road wondering what had happened. And soon realized that the car in front of us had hit a dog. And that dog was hobbling to the side of the road. It was a pitiful sight to see. It was something that I've never forgotten. 
And it's a difficult image for me to bring up for you to consider. But that collision of that car with that dog and the destruction that it brought about is just a small sample of the, of the collision of God's rule and our desire to rule in his place. Except we aren't innocent victims like that dog that was crossing the street. We stepped out in front of the car and were hit by it. We are actively engaged in rejecting the rule of God even as we cry out in pain at the sin and hurt and destruction that the revolt is bringing to us. When humanity revolted, the image was shattered. The fellowship was broken and we became cursed. You and I don't know any other kind of existence. We only know a a relationship, an existence of a broken relationship with God. We, We haven't experienced anything else from birth. But the fellowship that we had with God was destroyed and we have been paying for it ever since. When you revolt against the God who made you and in whose image you are made, you are revolting against the very fabric of your being. And so we, the human race, hurt one another, abuse one another, dominate the weak, take from the poor on a global level every day. The ways that we were meant to be like God that I ran through were to be like God morally. Now our wills are bent towards evil, become twisted and sick. Emotionally, the capacities that we've had to enjoy God have been shriveled up and we have scammed ourselves into believing that its replacement is making us happy. Volitionally, our wills, whereas before we were created to have the ability to please God, we now no longer even have the ability to please God because we are depraved. And we're able to do good things. You're able to get the mail for your neighbor when he's on vacation. And you're able to provide for your kids. And you're able to do this and you're able to do that. But as Ken has pointed out to us many times, even the good we do, we do for the wrong reasons. Our wills are bent. Intellectually, we were created with wonderful gifts to know. But that knowledge and the gift that we were given wasn't enough. We wanted the knowledge of good and evil. And we got it. And the burden of that knowledge has been too great for any one of us to bear. Relationally, meant to have relationship with God, meant to have harmonious relationships with one another. And by the fourth chapter of Genesis, we've already seen a brother murder his other brother in cold blood. The gift of relationships have been perverted so that we use power to control one another. We use relationships selfishly rather than for the good of another. And so we have broken relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, friends and neighbors. 
We have people groups trying to subvert and subdue one another. And even more tragically, we have a broken relationship with our Creator. The one whose image we were meant to reflect. Is the image completely lost? Has it been shattered beyond all recognition? I believe the Bible tells us that it has not. Because in Genesis 9, God sanctions capital punishment for his people. And in doing so, he grounds it on the fact that a person who has been murdered is what? Made in the image of God. And we see in the New Testament, in James chapter 3 and verse 9, that people have such difficulty controlling their tongues, which is part of our image bearing. We have such difficulty controlling the tongue. With it, we bless God in the same breath. We curse man. And the verse goes on to say what? In whose image they are made. Meant to reflect God. Meant to have relationship with God. The image has been shattered, but it has not been lost. And so we have creative abilities. We can still create art. We can still create music. We can create things of beauty. We can make things that cause wonder in us. But we are also capable of creating the grotesque and the crass and the sensual. And we are capable of imagining a world where God's rule is not in effect. And we try, and in our art, in our lives, to make that world happen. All the while, again dragging ourselves to the side of the road, crying out in pain because of the hurt and the destruction it's bringing. Get depressing. But there is good news. None of this caught God by surprise. He wasn't left scrambling, figuring out what plan B or plan C was going to be. And so we have, thirdly in your outline, the fact that the image can be restored. How, you ask, how in the world, with the picture, the visual picture that you've painted for us, how in the world can the image be restored? Is it even possible And the answer to that question is found in Jesus. The answer to the question of how the image can can be restored is found in a person. It's found in Jesus. And so you see, firstly, that restoration starts with trusting in Jesus, the perfect image of God. The New Testament talks about Jesus being what we should have been. Jesus is exactly the image of God, a perfect representation of God. He's exactly what we should have been. Let me give you three verses that tell us that. You can just listen while I read them to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God 
and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. One person said this about these verses. Frequently, these verses are understood exclusively as a reference to the deity of Christ. However, in the passages cited, it is the incarnate mediator, the last Adam, who is at least all that God intended the first Adam to be. Incarnation, that is, God becoming flesh. Incarnation means that Jesus is truly human. And because he is truly human, he is truly the image of God. So let's connect some dots here. Why, why is it significant that Jesus is the perfect image of God? Why is that significant to us? Its significance can be found in this single word, substitution. Christianity is about substitution. As you read through the Old Testament, the beginning part of your Bible, you'll see that over and over again we have people committing various types of sins. And what do they have to do? They have to offer a sacrifice. In some way, the sacrifice that they offer is taking the punishment that they deserve for sin because sin has consequences. And that's why we see in the New Testament, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He recognizes that Jesus is coming, that perfect image of God is coming as a substitute, as a sacrifice. Whereas those Old Testament sacrifices were never going to be effectual enough to completely remove the effects of sin and restore the shattered image in each one of us, there was a perfect image bearer who was going to come and was going to reflect God's image perfectly the way you and I should have and bear the punishment for not reflecting it perfectly like you and I have. That perfect image bearer is Jesus. And so what we must do, understanding 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, substitution, that he might bring us to God. Substitution so that the relationship can be renewed and restored and we can get back to being what God had always intended us to be. Reflectors of his glory. And so you must do what Romans 10.9 says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Restoration continues as we become like Jesus. Restoration starts as we trust in Jesus. Restoration continues as we become like Jesus. Remember how I said that God knew what was, what was happening the whole time? Romans 8.29, let me read that to you. For those whom he, it's referring to God the Father, those whom, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 
His son is Jesus, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. He planned that Jesus, bearing the perfect image of God, would have many who would come after him that would be like him. We see also verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the image of the Lord, are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. Okay, so the world's full of problems, right? Shattered, shattered images everywhere. Coming to faith in Jesus isn't necessarily going to fix every single one of those problems. It's not going to restore necessarily all of your damaged relationships or all the mis- mistakes that you've made in the past or all the, thi- all the decisions that you've made that can't be undone because that's life. There are decisions that you have to live with the consequences of. But when you put your faith in Jesus, it's going to do something better. It's going to change you. You are going to get fixed. He's going to repair the shattered image in you. And that is a restoration that will ultimately be complete when we see Jesus. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 1 John 3, 2, which says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. The image can be restored. And there's going to be a repair that's going to go on through life. And to one degree or another, we're going to fail over and over and over again at being what God wants us to be. But we cannot lose hope because one day we're going to see Jesus and when we do, it's fixed and it's done. And we'll be exactly what God had originally intended for us to be. A very encouraging chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 15. You probably are all, most of you are familiar with it, but it's talking about the hope that we have, a future resurrection, the fact that death is not the end. And at the end of that chapter, the Bible says this, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, the man of dust, just as we have borne his image, he was broken. We are broken. We are sinful. We reject the rule of God. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. You see that we've come full circle? You see the take-home truth in your outline? People are valuable because of whom they reflect. We were created to reflect the glory of God and given so many gifts to be like him and to use for his glory and for our common good. We threw off the rule of God thinking that would be a better plan and it hasn't. How's that worked out? Didn't work. And yet, the image can be restored and perhaps you haven't noticed 
But in discussing the image of God this morning, what I've actually done is explain to you the gospel. The gospel has everything to do with human rights on the political stage and in our country and everything to do with your personal quest for significance. People matter because they're made in God's image and so do you. Let me conclude then with some applications to the word that we've heard this morning. First of all, we should be responsible. We, as Christians, of all people, have a foundation for human rights and human value and human dignity. And so Christians, of all people, should be concerned with those things because of the foundation that we have. We, do not, we are not equipped with mere empathy or sympathy for other people. There is a deeper theological foundation for why people matter. People matter because of God. And we of all people understand that. But beyond that, we understand the depth of the problem. And we have a responsibility with the gospel Because the gospel is ultimately what shattered image bearers need to hear. No amount of fixing up physical pain or mental or emotional anguish, though though terrible, no amount of fixing that can fix the root of the problem. People, yes, people need help, and yes, we need to be fighting for human rights, but people need the gospel. And we have a responsibility to give it to them. We need to be, secondly, by way of application, we should be confident. You can rest assured that you matter to God. Let your quest for significance end today. He endowed you with all sorts of gifts meant to reflect Him, and that bring him glory. Don't root your significance in temporary achievements that will be forgotten, and they will. No world records or amount of fame or statues in a park will matter. What makes you significant is God. Which leads me to my third application. We should be humble. We aren't great in and of ourselves. We don't have this inherent intrinsic worth because we are wonderful, delightful beings. We have it because of God. And that should lead us to humility. And that should lead us to treat others with grace. Because not only do you matter to God, But the people that you may not think of as much of, they matter to God too, just as much as you, just as much as me. People that don't look right to you or don't have the same skin color as you have or are too fat or are too skinny or are too ugly or are too tall or too short or whatever, how dare you discriminate against them? How dare we laugh at another person 
when we laugh at another person because of their appearance or because of what they're like, in some sense, we are laughing at God. You don't want to do that. Fourthly, and I promise I'm almost done. Fourth application. We should pursue Jesus. Remember how I said that life is a process of of having the image restored? That process is work. It doesn't just happen. Yes, there's nothing that we can do to make God take us in and love us and forgive us. Jesus took care of that. But that begins a journey that we walk day by day with Jesus, trying to figure out what he was like and what he's taught, and then putting in the hard work of denying ourselves and doing that. You're made in the image of God. Many of you have made a decision to trust Christ. Are you pursuing Jesus? And finally, maybe I'm speaking to someone here this morning and you have been wandering through life with this deep and abiding sense that something isn't right. Something's wrong. And you th- maybe you've never told anybody. And you're wondering, maybe I'm crazy. Does anyone else feel this? Let me just reassure you this morning, you aren't crazy. But something is very, very wrong and you can go into your house and pull down the blinds to shut out the light and turn out the music to turn up the music to try to drown out that sound but you can never get away from it because the problem is inside but hopefully this morning is the morning that you open the blinds and let the light of the word penetrate your heart and this is the morning that you believe you believe that Jesus the perfect image bearer has done for you what you cannot do for yourself has borne the punishment that you cannot bear and you can be fixed if you will only repent and believe Would you do that? Let's pray. Lord, I am thankful that the Word answers questions that we grapple with in our country today and personally in our hearts. That words written so many years ago could have so much significance for us now. And Lord, we thank you, we humbly thank you that you gave us good gifts, you made us like you, and that you have pursued us. Even when the image was shattered, you have pursued us with grace so that the image might be restored. I pray that you would help us to engage in becoming like Jesus. And for those of us in whom something is very, very wrong. I pray that today it would be made right. I pray it in Jesus' name.